So we came here legally, but we were only allowed to be here for six months. And we overstayed our visas, and then I became what now is called undocumented. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. But before we get started, let's check in with the co-host, Cody. How's it going? Hey, man. Just enjoying the summer. I actually just moved into my house on the lake, and so I'm living there for the next two months before I move into Boston, real close to you. How about you, man? Well, I just got back from a little adventure in the uh, Boston Harbor Islands. So for those who don't know, there's actually a little set of islands outside of Boston that we went camping on, and luckily, we got caught in the middle of a thunderstorm right when we were setting up camp. So that was a little interesting, but we had a good 4th of July around here. Looking forward to the summer. Get going around here. Well, you know who else got caught up in the middle of a thunderstorm, Justin, is our guest today. He had so many crazy hardships, so many things that could go wrong, and he just persevered and pushed through. Honestly, such a crazy, inspiring story, and I'm so pumped to share this episode with the audience. So take it away, Diego. Yeah, so I was born in Lima, Peru, and I lived there for about nine years before we moved to the United States. The reason why we moved to the United States was because my dad couldn't find a job. And even though we like we weren't going to have a good future as as a family. So that's why we came to the United States. And I'll be completely like I'll say everything about me here in the podcast. So we came here legally when I was nine years old. We arrived to Florida and I didn't know this at the time, but we came with a visa. So we came here legally but we were only allowed to be here for six months. And we overstayed our visas, and then I became what now is called undocumented. So we started from zero, basically, here in the United States. My dad and my mom, we came here with $8,000, and uh, from there, we had to basically start from scratch and build our future here. My parents had to learn English, me as well, right? So I went to school in third grade and I lived in Florida for 14 years. I went to high school. When I was in high school, I was studying the same thing as like all my friends and everything. And when I turned 16 to get my driver's license, I went just like all my friends. And I found out that with the documents that I have, I couldn't get my driver's license. And that's when it really hit me what it meant to be undocumented, because before I just had no idea. It's something that I heard or you saw it in the news or something, but it doesn't really hit you until you're like, okay, now I have obstacles that I'm going to have to get through. That was one of the obstacles as I went into high school. And fortunately, I put all my efforts into my studies and I was able to graduate third in my high school class. And then from there, I was able to get to college. While I was at FSU and getting into my first year, I found out too that as I began applying for scholarships and schools, I couldn't get any student loans or any grants either because I wasn't an American. So they were asking me for for my green card, for my citizenship. I just had to get creative and figure out another way. Fortunately, I was still able to get some scholarships and had enough money to pay for like one semester the first year. And then I began to volunteer at a nonprofit. 
I they said Diego, you've helped us so much more in like as a freshman, what some seniors do in a year. So we want to hire you. And I went through the hiring process and then they said, Diego, everything is looking good, but we need to see your work authorization. So I go to my parents, I ask them, hey mom, I just need my work authorization. And she says, we don't have it. So that's when I knew that not only can I not drive or get student loans, but now I cannot work legally in the United States. And I'm like, holy crap, what am I gonna do to continue pushing to my goals? Because like I had the work ethic, I had the the desire and the goals, but it was tough. It was obstacles that many of my other friends didn't face in their teenage, early 20s, but I was still able to keep a positive mindset and to see it through. And I gained one of the skills of being resourceful because I remember that my dad told me that the U.S. is the land of opportunity. So I always had that ingrained in me and I always found a way. And that's what I tell a lot of people is like, no matter what your circumstances is, you do not have to let that define you. You have to continue pushing to your goals. Man, that's a, that's an awesome kind of beginning of the story. And I got to unwrap some of the technical details of that a little bit, because I know you said, hey, I hit this roadblock. I wasn't able to get my driver's license. And then you're like, you hit this internship. You're not able to start working there because you don't have a paperwork. But obviously today, I have to imagine you do have a driver's license and you, you are working or have worked. So what did you do to get over those technical barriers? Yeah. So in the beginning, I had to get resourceful in the way that I found out that undocumented immigrants can create their own LLCs. So while I was in college, I had to figure out different ways to, to pay for my rent, my living and all that stuff. And because my major was IT, it worked out great because it's something that you can do from your computer. You do not have to be driving around or checking into a place and stuff like that. So I created my own LLC and began working as a contractor. So I was riding my bike to like the nonprofit, small businesses. I did the websites for restaurants and that's how I was able to pay for college that way. Another way that I also was able to pay for college was I did study guides. So the teacher said, if you guys know these 20 questions for the exam, you will get an A. So I would get all the questions, read the books, write the answers, and then I, I will sell those as study guides. And because I was in classes with 200 people, 300 people, for one exam, I made $200. For the third exam, I made $300. Everybody was happy because they all got A's. And then I just put the effort and I gave it super easy for them, right? But in 2012, Obama passed the executive action called DACA. And the DACA program basically allows us, the dreamers, because that's what I'm called now. I, you see the news and everything. I am what Congress calls a dreamer. And the people that came here under the age of 16 as kids who graduated high school and have a clean criminal record, we were able to get a driver's license and a work permit. And at that point, and it happened, it's crazy how the timing happened, but my senior year of college, I was graduating and that's when that program started and it allowed me to get hired by General Motors right as I was graduating and I moved to Austin, Texas. I could finally, months later, became a full-time employee and was I bought my car and everything changed from there. But it was, it was just uh, an incredible 
incredible experience of like trying to figure out different ways to make stuff happen. So this is just such a crazy story to me. And as Justin and I are just white guys who cannot relate to Docker or Dreamer whatsoever, I mean, this is just so inspiring. I mean, where did you like pull your motivation from? Because you said you started developing websites for companies. Like that's how you pulled yourself through college. I mean, that's not just a normal thing that most kids do. I'm sure most dreamers aren't doing that type of stuff. Did you have any type of resources or a figure or just something you were pulling motivation and these skills from that other people probably weren't doing the same? The motivation came from my parents. Because it was sort of like in the beginning for for years, my parents, they didn't have a day off. When we came here, they were making like five bucks an hour. And my mom had a job at a gas station in the ghetto, like in a bad area in Miami. And it was from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. And it was horrible because, yeah, so my and because it was far away, as an example, my my dad had to sleep outside in the in the van because like we they couldn't afford the gas to drive an hour back home and then have my dad pick my mom up again and it was just too dangerous so my dad would just like, sleep right right outside there in the van so like those little things were like always in the back of my mind that I was like okay they've sacrificed so much so that I could so that I could have a future it was those examples that they're like, man, if my parents could like sleep outside in a gas, if my dad could do that, like I can ride my bike for 30 minutes and, and sweat my butt off just so that I can <laughs> meet with a client, right? I rode my bike with a towel and everything. So it was like those little things that gave me that opportunity. And then I always had the mindset that there's always a way. So what this means for me, it like I took it with... In software, in IT, Google has the answers for anything. So I would tell if if the guy wanted a website with like the menu one way or the whatever, I would be like, I could do it. And then I would go home and I would Google the crap out of it. And uh, <laughs> it might take me hours and hours, but I always figure it out and I was able to deliver what I told him I could. So it was a challenge, but it was like the only way that I could do it. And I still had to take my 15, 18 credit hours every semester so that I could continue doing it. And I was able to graduate with two degrees. So it was good. Yeah. I mean, like Cody said, I mean, we obviously take probably some things for granted being white guys in America. But I mean, I will say like I can relate to you in some degree as far as it coming from the low income background. And we've just continued to see this across a lot of the the financial independent space that people who come from these, you know, more meager backgrounds just tend to really crush it. I mean, they have this motivation, they have this desire, they have a lot more willpower and resourcefulness than maybe people who are handed stuff. So I totally get that. And I know that's more of a, a statement than a question, but the question I do have is this DACA program, so that's that's covering you, right? You were under sixteen. What about your parents? And if it doesn't cover them, does it concern you being more of a public figure bringing some kind of them into the spotlight if they are still here and if they didn't get protection from the stocker program yeah so right now they don't have protection my dad does have his green card and my mom is on the process of getting her green card so it's been a crazy crazy process but basically my mom and myself are the only ones left being able to get our green card and then be able to to become a citizen. So that's what's next for us. But right now, 
there is no way for the dreamers, for me, for example, to become a citizen right now. It doesn't exist. So that's what right now Congress, it's up to Congress to decide, okay, what are they going to do? Are they going to deport people like me, like dreamers that are contributing to this country? And then for me, in my eyes, it's sort of, it will be really stupid and excuse the word to deport somebody that's paying thousands of dollars in taxes and that I have gotten an education at a elementary, middle school, high school to graduate from a university here in the United States and then kick me out so that I could help out another country or work over there when there's so much that I can give back here. Now, it is interesting because I guess the backwardsness that sometimes we we deal with this stuff in America because I know like you know I go down to and work with some kids in Mexico and the really bright kids in Mexico they actually can't leave Mexico because they see them as a resource and they're like oh well, this is a smart kid we can't let them leave because then they're just gonna give all their efforts over to another country and we need that resource here so it is an interesting point that you bring up like hey I'm I'm killing it like I've got a great education I'm a really productive citizen why would you kick me out this is just gonna hurt you more than it's gonna hurt me so that, that's an interesting point I've never heard anybody bring up yeah and what you mentioned earlier about being in the spotlight and stuff like that I didn't really share much that I was a dreamer or that I had DACA. I just was laying down low. And it wasn't until 2017 when the current administration tried to terminate the program. I basically, that's when I came out on social media and I was like, listen, the current administration is trying to terminate DACA, but I have DACA. I am one of those dreamers. And here is a picture of my taxes. Like I went, when I said I just came out, I sent a picture of the taxes that I paid as a 26 year old of over $28,000. And I was like, I'm 26. I own a company where I am providing jobs to Americans. I paid over $28,000 in income taxes, in, in taxes overall. And I own eight properties by that time. So I was doing all of this other stuff and I'm a dreamer. So that post went viral and it got me because I shared like my whole story and it got me on Forbes, CNN Money and uh, Fox News that same weekend here in Austin. And since then, it has been just like sharing it as much as I can. And I don't really care about what other people say about me because I know what I've been able to produce. And that's something that not many millennials can say that they've done. And I've done it despite all these obstacles. So something that I love about your story, Diego, and actually for people who don't know, I met Diego in Austin, Texas when I was on the book tour with Grant Sabatier, and he just had so much energy. He was crushing it. He had all these properties and stuff, but I don't want to get too far ahead in the story right now. I kind of want to hop back to right when you graduate college, because something that I really love about your story is you see a hurdle and you learn to jump and you always try to find like the optimal path. You're always pivoting. I know you didn't stay in IT, so could you talk about the transition to what you ended up doing after your IT career? I don't know, maybe you still do some freelance IT stuff now, <laughs> but what did you start to discover that was like the supercharged path to financial independence? Yes, so in college, and I have to mention the book that I read, I was 21 years old, 2021, 20, and my best friend, Pascal, he threw a book at me and he says, you have to read this book. And it was Rich That Poor That by Robert Kiyosaki. And that book, like, it just taught me something that I've never learned before. And it was the difference between passive income 
and active income. So I learned at that time that when you're, you make active income, when you're trading your time for money and you make passive income, when you make your money work for you. And I found out that the rich basically invest their money into buying assets. They acquire assets, not liabilities. And that understanding just changed my whole mindset in knowing how I was able to live my life. And when I was 21, I went to an event called Succeed Faster. And a guy named Adam Carroll said this, you should live a bigger life, not a bigger lifestyle. And that quote hit me as well, because I figured that in the beginning, I shouldn't focus in my lifestyle. I usually just focus on having a bigger life. And for me, that meant investing in experiences, investing in my future and creating wealth. Now, when I turned 24, I'm here in Austin. I'm a software developer. By this point, I tr- I knew that sooner or later I was going to be in real estate. So I got my real estate license. And at age 24, I started house hacking. What house hacking is, is basically buying a single family house or a duplex, triplex, or, and quadplex. You can rent out the sites on those. But if you buy a house, you can rent out the rooms. And you have your tenants pay for your mortgage. So here's the great part. When I was 24, I bought a four-bedroom home in North Austin, lived with three roommates. My mortgage payment was $1,650. I'm sorry. My mortgage payment was $1,350. And I was renting each side, each room for $550. So the total gross was $1,650. So that covered my mortgage and it also covered my car payment. So since I've been 24, I've had I've been living for free and I've had my car payment covered by other people. So it's been awesome. And that gave me the opportunity to begin investing in into other things because then I had zero living expenses as far as housing goes. And so I want to just dig into one thing you said. You said I knew that I was eventually going to be in real estate. How did you know that you're eventually going to be in real estate? Like what drove that? Well, after I read Rich That Poor That, I began to study millionaires and I began to study success. And I found out that a lot of millionaires, successful people, have different streams of income. And most of them come through real estate. And it's a great, great way to collect assets. And I wanted, and that's something that was tangible. And I could, there's so many other ways you can invest in the stock market and stuff like that. But my mindset was, Everybody needs a place to live, so why not own those places? And that's why I went into real estate. That's definitely true because actually two weeks ago, we had a couple on who are 27 and 28 retiring this year, and they started investing in real estate two years ago. You cannot retire from investing in the stock market in two years. I'm sorry. like It's pretty close to impossible. Real estate is just such a powerful tool if done correctly because obviously you can get over leveraged, and if you have a market where you can't rent, that's awful, but... Yeah, you're right. Real estate is just a crazy powerful tool. So let's get back into your real estate journey. You get that first house hack. You're 24 years old. Do you just hop from house hack to house hack to house hack year after year after year doing like an FHA loan? Or could you talk exactly like through that process? Because now you said you have eight properties, but I'm sure it wasn't just like one and then you buy seven. So could you yeah. kind of walk us through the the process there? Yeah. So the the main thing is getting started. And the cool part that a lot of people think is that you need 20% down for a house that's 200,000. They're like, oh, I, I don't have 40K, 45K. And I'm like, you don't. 
there are different programs that if you live in the house, you get an owner-occupant loan. So there's FHA putting 3.5% down or conventional loan, which is 3 to 5% down. Now, if you are part of the VA or you get a USDA loan, you can buy a house with zero money down. But just for the masses, conventional and FHA are the way to go. But you have to live in the property. The best part about those is that you get to have a cheaper or a lower interest rate than if you were investing in real estate. So as an example, with less than 10K, I was able to get into the house where I was living at the age of 24, and then I was living for free. Now, the cool part is that after a year or two years, you need to live in the property for at least a year, and then you can move out and you can do it again. So you can repeat the process up to about four times without getting things more complicated. So this is this works out great because what I did is I was able to move from the master bedroom in house number one and buy another property and move into that master, but rent out my master bedroom for $750. So then now I'm cash flowing gross about $1,000 or more from one property that only cost me really out of my pocket $10,000. So in one year per se, you're able to get all your money back. And now I'm buying another property. Now, what you can do is you can repeat this process over and over again, but you're building passive income. And that's the great part of it. I believe that having a job or having active income is great, but having passive income makes the biggest difference so that you can become financially independent and actually do what you really want to do. And that's why a year or two after I started house hacking, I was able to quit corporate America and I became a realtor full time. And I was able to live off part of my investments and stuff like that while still hustling and getting started on the, on the realtor side, which I still do today. And on that first property you bought, I know you mentioned you needed like 10 or less than $10,000 to get that one. What would have been the value of that house? So I bought it for one seventy. And now that property is worth about two twenty five. Yeah, I mean Austin is just an exploding area. If you're not, if you haven't been there in the last few years, I mean it's it's nuts. So that what's that work out to be like seven or eight percent, not twenty percent. So like what you're saying, you don't necessarily you look at a property that's two hundred thousand dollars. It doesn't necessarily mean you need the forty thousand dollars. Like there's other ways. That's not a necessarily a barrier. So we'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash show, all lowercase, at shopify.com slash show to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash show. 
Now back to the show. Yeah, yeah. And you get the benefit of buying with low money down because for the next property, for example, you can still buy it. Like if you're living for free, let's say, and you were living before that in an apartment where you were paying $1,000 and now you're living for free, if you didn't change anything from your finances other than the housing, now you have an extra $12,000 in your bank account. And that $12,000 is already the down payment for your next house, as an example. And you just repeat the process over and over again. And just for clarity on this, throughout those house hacks, you're probably, you're single, right? No family, no kids? Yeah, same. Okay. I have a girlfriend now, but back then when I was 24, yeah. So how many house hacks did you do? I know you said after four, it gets complicated, but I mean, how many times did you replicate this process? Because if you're cash flowing $1,000 in every house, after the fourth house, you're at 4K per month. That's a pretty solid income for a single guy who doesn't have to support a family or kids or anything. Like, could you just talk us through like that process of acquiring all those properties? Yeah. So what, what happened was I began to, so at some point here in Austin, I had like four or five different house hacks. Because of my situation as a dreamer, it early on, it became a little bit hard to get into, to get the qualifications and all that stuff because not many banks were lending money at that point. So I had to also, I own some of the properties for, for house hacking, but then I also began to buy properties outside of Texas and buy them in Jacksonville, Florida, where my brother lives. He's also in real estate. So he was able to find me some some deals and I was buying properties over there on the cheaper side. Like I'm buying homes in Austin for like $200,000 and I'm buying properties in Jacksonville for like 30K, right? There's a huge difference. So my portfolio began to grow that way where now, so now I'm 28 years old and I own a total of 19 doors, which is a total of 13 properties two or three in Austin, some in Florida. And then I also am doing Airbnb in Tennessee with another business partner. That's awesome. And <laughs> one thing you mentioned there though, was like how being a dreamer kind of made some things more complicated on just even beyond real estate. I would love if you could give us a breakdown of, you know, what is it that someone who's not technically a U.S. citizen, like living in the U.S., what you can and can't do. So what kind of you know, are there any type of investment vehicles that you can't be a part of? Is Social Security not available to you if you were of age? Like, What are the things that are and are not available to someone in your situation? So here's one thing that I still haven't been able to figure out yet that I really want to do, but I haven't found a solution is so another way to build wealth is by using HELOCs. And I'll explain this here. I haven't done it yet, so I have no experience on it. But here's what I want to do. You can take a HELOC from your primary residence, which is where you live, your house, and you can let the bank borrow, or you can borrow from the bank, let's say 10% of the value of the home. Just for easy math, let's say it's 10K. What Right now, I cannot qualify for a HELOC because the way that the programs work and stuff like that, the DACA recipients with my situation, we cannot do that. So... But the end goal would be to get a HELOC. One of the things that when you're buying a home, you're paying a lot of money in in interest, right? Because you're buying a home with a loan. If you were paying it cash, that's fine. But with a HELOC, you can borrow money and it becomes a credit line. The idea is to use, let's say I have a credit line of 10,000. 
to borrow that and pay off 10K to the actual bank that owns the loan. So then now my loan, instead of being, let's say, 150, now it goes to 140. And then I pay off that 10K and then I do it again, 130, 130, then it goes to 120, 110 until I can pay off that loan. But the HELOC keeps on growing because you have more equity in the house. So that's what I want to do next, because what happens is you can borrow all of this money and you have a credit line out of it. Now, many people do this and the way that they do it is that they get a HELOC and then they renovate their house. I don't want to do that. I want to get a HELOC, get as much equity as I can from the house and buy other investment properties. That's what I want to do next, but I cannot do that. That seems genius though. I mean, in just mathematical sense, I mean, that seems like an awesome idea. What kind of downsides or repercussions do you see? Like there's definitely inherent risks. And I know we've been in a market where real estate's kind of been on the rise for almost 11 and a half years now. I'd love if you could kind of talk about some of the risks, because obviously it's a little bit more risky since you're using leverage than, say, just investing in like a broad-based stock market index fund. Yeah. So one of the risks, and this is just analyzing everything, right? I'm renting out the rooms for like 600 bucks, and I'm buying houses where like the perfect house hack, if you're going to buy a house, it's a four-bedroom that's two stories, just so that if a roommate's showering in one of the bathrooms, the other roommate can use the bathroom downstairs or something. So you maximize your opportunity by being able to rent out four rooms. Because if you had three rooms, each rented at 1600, I mean, at 600, you the max is 1800 if you rent out those three rooms. But if you can rent out four rooms when you're not living there, now you're talking about 2400. That's a huge difference. Now, if worse comes to worse and the market, something happens to the market and stuff like that, I do not think that rent for a room would go from 600 to like $100. Like that's not going to happen. It might go to 400, 450, but at 450, for example, there's still cash flow in the property. And I am all about the mindset that you have to buy a property that cash flows. So when I run the math, One of the criteria that I do is if I were to put a family in there, would I be able to cover the mortgage? Or if I can make some money, if I put a family there, awesome. But if I'm, if I can at least cover the mortgage, then I'm happy. And that's, that's the way that I do it. A lot of people feel like they want to put more money down in owner occupant loans. That is fine, but it all depends on what your lifestyle, what your situation is. If my mortgage and my mortgage payment and everything is getting covered by other people, then I'm totally fine. Right. And that's the difference between good debt and bad debt. So making sure that in the down, like on a downturn or something, if I can still rent out the home and break even, then I'm good. Now there are different ways that people invest. You can invest for appreciation and that's more gamble because you don't really know, like you're, you're hoping that it appreciates. But with cash flow, that's something that you know you're going to get. And I'm always a person of investing for cash flow. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the point you make about the worst is going to drop is, you know, say it's 400 and that's still cash flowing. Or, you know, I think what a lot of people never kind of think about is, hey, even if it breaks even, you're still paying off a house. And in whatever it is, whether it's 15 years or 30 years, whatever your loan is, 
even if you broke even the whole time, you're still going to end up with a house that's paid off. So like, that's still a huge piece, even if you're not cash flowing. But looking at your strategy, which is an awesome one, it also, though, points to you having close to, I don't know, close to 80 tenants. I mean, if you have four tenants in each of door and you have 19 doors, now you're talking about close to 80 tenants. How do you manage all these individual tenants? Because you know, that means their leases could be coming up at different times. They don't necessarily know each other. How are you managing not only just getting people in there, but also like the personalities, like throwing four random people in the same house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically my portfolio right now, as as it is, I have two properties right now that I'm house hacking and I'm thinking about buying my third one, meaning that they're renting out by the rooms. I, at some point I had five or six, but I decided to sell those and invest in Florida and in Tennessee. And those, I have a property manager and those have long-term tenants. So those Mm. are not by the rooms. I wanted to sort of diversify my portfolio a little bit. And the ones that are in Airbnb, those are condos in a more like place where people go out there for vacation and stuff like that. So that gets that market. And then in Jacksonville, I have more long-term tenants. But here in Austin, where I do have the roommates, I so I go through a background check. I ask them very particular questions as like, I ask them what their current living situation is. Because if they say, hey, I'm living out of my car right now, or I don't like right now, my situation is not good and stuff like that. And it's like, they may not be the best tenant. If I charge a $500 security deposit, no matter what, and that allows me to get a qualified tenant or at at least one of the qualifications, because I know that if they have $500 just for the security deposit, then they will be much better off than somebody that says, hey, can you break that up in threes? So that is like a hard qualification that I hit. And then I make them go through a background check as well. And in the background check, that's when they're going to tell me like their credit, if they've been evicted in the past or if if they've been a criminal background, anything, I will know. And then from there, I can ask them more, more questions. Now, I haven't really, there was only one, one issue that I had, and this was back in 2015, but other than that one, it has been pretty smooth. And fortunately, my post usually gets because I share a little bit about me and I'm like, hey, I'm in my 20s, graduated college recently, blah, blah, blah. I usually get the millennials, people in their 20s. So right now, a lot of my roommates are working in corporate America. They're software developers. They're in their 20s. So it makes life a lot easier. So I kind of want to dive in, kind of take a step back, actually, because we've been diving into real estate. We've had quite a few episodes really honing in and focusing on real estate. But something that you talked about, Diego, and I know I'd love if you could talk about this. We haven't really talked about like what you spend and your expenses and if frugality plays a factor at all into your financial independence journey. But you have these six principles of achieving financial freedom. So could you talk a little bit about what that means and how that could help other people on their path to financial independence? Yeah. So the six things that I have found, and this is not just from me, it's me learning. So I belong, I'm part of a mastermind group that has 150 to 200 entrepreneurs who are millionaires. And I'm not a millionaire yet, but it's been crazy what I've been able to learn just by by surrounding myself with them. So I have seen and I have learned after hanging out with them for four years that there are six different steps 
are keys to acquire financial independence. And number one is managing your personal finances. And that is something that not many people do, but you have to understand how much is coming in and how much is coming out. And I've been able since 2014, every month with my buddy Pascal, the one who introduced me to Rich Dad Poor Dad. So we go over all our finances, how much we made, how much our expenses are or were, and what our net worth is, like how much in assets we have and stuff like that. And we've been tracking that since 2014. And now fast forward 2019, we have all the spreadsheets and everything. And it's crazy that once we track it, we can manage it and help it grow. So that's been one of the best parts. So number one is managing your finances. Number two is scheduling personal development. I feel like a lot of people in this, as they're going towards their financial independence journey, there's a lot of, it's not easy. It's it's hard. So by scheduling personal development, you get to give yourself some inspiration, some motivation, and be able to become a better person inside so that you can continue executing on the outside. So number three is the power of your tribe. So surrounding yourself with the right peer group, with the right friends, with the right mentors, that allows you to continue growing. Because if you're not surrounding yourself with the right people, you're easily going to go the other way. Then number four is accountability with goal setting. So goal setting with accountability. That allows people to actually know where they're going and have a plan, but they have to share it with their peer group because if they don't share it, then it's very hard for them to become accountable. And that's when the excuses happen and they might not achieve what they really want because it was too hard for them, let's say. And then because they weren't showing up or sharing those goals with them, then it wasn't going to happen. Number five is increasing your income, right? And that's something that I did. I was working as a software developer and I became an agent and was working as, as a realtor here part time. And but I was able to increase my income. And then the last one, the last step is investing. And a lot of people think that to achieve financial independence or financial freedom, you need to invest first. I say, no, you need to do the first five first. You manage your mindset, you manage your finances, you increase your income, and then you invest the right way. That's awesome, man. I just wanted to hop into those because I think they're so powerful. And what I really like is that they're not all financial stuff. It's not like, Number one, cut your grocery bill. Number two, like stop spending money and going out to eat. Like it, there was some like personal development stuff in there, which I really like. And that's why I wanted to touch on that. Yeah. But Diego, before we kind of hop into the last few questions here, do you have anything that we haven't quite covered that you'd like to say to the audience? Um, no, I mean, we've gone. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Awesome, man. Well, Diego, your story is so inspiring, man. Honestly, truly incredible. And I cannot relate to it. I'm sure there are some people in our audience who can relate to it. And for people who want to kind of get in contact with you, pick your brain, maybe they're in a similar situation. Maybe they're a dreamer too. Where's the best place that they can get in contact with you? So if they want to send me an email, info at diegocorzo.com. And if they do want to learn more about house hacking, they could go to househackingclub.com. All right. And one question we like to ask all of our guests is what is your number one tip? You can only say one tip for people on their path to financial independence. Don't focus on hitting the home runs. Get to first base first. Ooh, I like that. 
because the bases, the bases are gonna are the things that are able to make you achieve the things. People do not take action when they're trying to get the home run in their first try. Absolutely. Because if you're always swinging for the fences, you might keep missing. But if you're just going for those base hits, you might just get enough and get enough before and you'll start scoring runs eventually. Right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because people get analysis paralysis because they're hoping to get their first home run. And I'm like, screw that. Don't just wait. Just do it. And while people have been saying that they're going to get started in house hacking and then they don't do it because they want the perfect property, like you've seen my story, like you just need to take action. All right, and Diego, so this is the last question of the episode. It usually has nothing to do with the episode because this is the wild card question. I'm coming up with it off the top of my head. I'm not ready. Justin's not ready, which means you are definitely not ready. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. So Diego, let's kind of take it back into early childhood or maybe your teens or whatever. What's your favorite cartoon and why? My favorite cartoon, I used to watch Dragon Ball Z. Oh my gosh, seriously? That's awesome. I I like Dragon Ball Z. (laughs) Yeah, I remember, yeah, Dragon Ball Z. And it's funny because in Peru, I used to see it in Spanish and then when I came to the United States, I hated it watching it in, in English. I'm like, I don't understand what they're saying. And <laughs> yeah, but I got used to it. Oh man, that is such an awesome answer because Dragon Ball Z is probably my favorite cartoon of all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I used to love the Power Rangers too. So awesome. <laughs> All right, Diego. Well, just want to thank you one more time for coming on today and sharing your story. Honestly, super inspiring guy. Met him in Austin, Texas. He had so much energy. He has all these properties. He's crushing it. 28 years old with 19 doors, 13 properties, clearly crushing it. And Diego, just thank you so much again for hopping on the show today. It was truly an honor. I am super grateful to be here. Really enjoyed it. Man, Justin, I'm really glad that we got an episode like this done because it just gives me a vantage point that I honestly don't have any kind of perspective into whatsoever. And I think you don't either. Yeah, Cody, I totally get what you mean. Oftentimes I listen to guests and I see other, you know, stories out there and I'm like, oh yeah, I can totally relate to that. You know, I grew up on the poor end of things like, or most of the time somebody either had it worse or about the same as me, but this one was totally different. I mean, I never had to deal with not being able to get a driver's license, not getting to have a job because of paperwork you know this was just a whole nother ball game and the crazy thing is to me like it was so enlightening i've never really heard of dreamers or docker or anything like that before and he's still facing these challenges today it's not like it just ended and now he's all set like he still doesn't have citizenship which is absolutely nuts and obviously he's crushing it he is financially independent by cash flow standards he quit his corporate job this guy's doing everything right but just because he doesn't have the paperwork that someone like you or i have from the start he isn't granted those same liberties. Yeah, I mean, my first introduction to DACA and Dreamers was, you know, passing by a Fox News or a CNN TV set in an airport, and you just see people screaming on each side of it. But I think what gets lost in the shuffle are these real people and these real stories. And these these circumstances aren't so black and white. Like, we always like to argue about, you know, with politics, like, you know, the way things should be. But at the end of the day, there's some pretty sticky situations with some good people that are caught in the middle of it. And on top of all of this stuff with DACA and the Dreamer stuff, Diego is another example of how you can just absolutely crush it with real estate. If you listen a few weeks back, we had James and Emily on who hit five in less than two years of real estate. 
Diego now has eight properties. He's living off the investments from that properties. He's a realtor. He quit his corporate job. And so if done responsibly, if you're house hacking like Diego was, he would buy a four bedroom house, live in one bedroom, rent out the other three. It would already cover his mortgage. Then he'd move out, rent out the master bedroom, start cash flowing even more on that property and do the same thing four times over. It's an absolutely masterful plan and something that if house hacking is in the cards, whether you have a family, whether you're a single guy or girl, if you can do house hacking in any way, shape or form, it is a supercharged path to financial independence as we've seen so many times in the Fi Show. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that real estate and house hacking are his most profitable hustles. But I think the one thing we can't forget in his story is how early that these hustles started for Diego. And they started from a necessity standpoint, right? Like, no one could would hire him. He had no resources. So what did he do? You know, he's like, I can make study guides for students. I can, you know, I can make websites. I can learn how to code. I can do things that take no resources and no one else to help me out. And that's something that, you know, it's always good to think about. And it actually leads me into the. Whoa, what is that, Justin? <laughs> Man, it led me right into a call to action. So the call to action this week is. Listen, maybe not everyone can relate to a situation where you find yourself in another country undocumented and no one will hire you. But, you know, we always hear these doomsday stories and these thoughts of like when the next recession hits or whatever it is, there is a possibility you find yourself in a position where you're struggling to find another job. So the call to action this week is to sit there and create that doomsday plan. Like what happens if the bottom falls out and I can't rely on another human? I have almost no resources how I take care of myself or myself and my family. So that's the call to action this week, that doomsday plan. Awesome, man. Well, as we have always said or said multiple times on this podcast, skills are the new currency. So if there is a recession, if there is something where you lose your job, if you have those skills, you at least have that backup plan. And if you want to hear more about Diego's story, and actually something Diego was too humble to mention was that he was on a TED Talk. If you don't know what a TED Talk is, that is a talk that is usually viewed by millions of people. And Diego just absolutely crushed it. So if you want to check that out, that is in the show notes at thefyshow.com slash Diego, along with everything else that we talked about in this episode. And if you want to join one of the best and most riveting communities on the internet, join the Fi Show community at thefyshow.com slash community to join our Facebook group. And if you've been enjoying the episodes up to this point, please hit us with that five-star rating and review. It gives us motivation, gets us better guests, and just keeps this boat rocking. And as always, thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.